Hello. Can you imagine if I didn't have a talk? That would be fun. Ooh, what would I say? <laughs> I do have a talk. It's absolutely fine. Um, as Ben said, my name's Alice. It's really nice to see you all. And what a day. I love a baptism. Absolutely love a baptism. So it's so lovely to be with you this evening. I'll let you into a little secret. I um, grew up absolutely hating church. And um, I didn't really grow up around it, so my experience of it was Christians. <laughs> and the experiences I had with Christians were judgy. They were difficult. They were apprehensive, if not a little bit scared of science. And I loved, I didn't actually love science at school, that's not, that would be a lie, but I definitely loved knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that you would be scared of something that's so wonderful blew my mind. And for whatever reason, the thing that I really received from church was, or the idea of church, was that it just seemed to suffocate the fun out of everything. <laughs> you see, I was always a boundary pusher. I was one of those little kids who absolutely was the child in class who did everything the teacher told me not to, with a little smirk on my face. And now that I have some friends who are teachers, one of whom I'm currently looking at, I'm thinking, that must be hard. <laughs> but I was one of those children who absolutely loved a boundary so then I could just walk swiftly past it and have a little laugh to myself. I was a child with crazy hair and tree climbing was my thing and I had grey's knees and grubby clothes all the time. So I was your archetypal adventure kid and that sense of adventure followed me straight to my philosophy and world religions degree in London. And when I started I remember consciously thinking that this degree is an opportunity for me to have 90% fun and work the least amount possible. <laughs> You'll be surprised to know that I still managed to scrape by with a 2-1. Trust me, that was all third year. I did no work year one and two. But my party-going, boundary-pushing, freedom-loving self was so excited for the chaos. I wanted the adrenaline, I wanted the new friendships, I wanted the clubbing, I wanted all the things London had to offer, and I did it all a lot and a lot and a lot. And then midway through my first year, my friend, she invited me to church. And I remember thinking, I mean, I don't have anything to lose going to church, but this is gonna be interesting. <laughs> This is going to be fascinating because I get to watch these people actually, you know, do their Sunday thing. But then something about the people I met and then began to get to know was then surprising at this church I went to. They were fun. They actually had in-depth conversations. They were intelligent. They weren't offended by my constant and actually quite rude questions sometimes. Dare I say it, they were normal. And they did really believe in this person called Jesus. And they told stories, just like we've heard tonight, of how he had changed their lives. And I was like, uh, what is going on? These Christians are not just judgy. They really believe it, and they're nice. And so for about six months, I would just show up every so often. I would assume my usual place. 
which the church was slightly different to this one, but I would assume my usual place right at the back of church behind a pillar so that nobody could see me from the front and I could just watch everybody else and their behavior and really like take in the whole experience. And um, throughout that six months, I still didn't believe anything. And then one Sunday, this vicar called Ed preached at the front. And then um, after he spoke, he invited people to the front if they wanted to receive prayer. And I distinctly remember thinking, no, I don't want prayer. I won't be going to the front. And then out of the corner of my eye, after about probably about three, four minutes, I see I watched and see Ed walk from the front. So he was standing around here. I see him walk around the pillars straight to the back and right to me. Don't worry, that's not what we normally would do. I can't confirm why he did it, but he did it all the same. But he found me and he said, I really feel like God is speaking to me about you. Please, can I pray? And the thing is, I'm British. So I can't say no to a direct question. (sighs) So I said yes. And he said something along the lines of, why don't you just hold out your hands like this? This is, there's nothing in it. It's just a sign of being open. And why don't you, in your own heart and mind, just say, God, if you're there, come and meet me. So I did all of that. And I don't really remember what he prayed. It wasn't anything particularly complicated. Um, He just put his hand on my shoulder, invited the Spirit to come, and he prayed. And as soon as he invited the Holy Spirit, this weight fell all over my body. And when I say weight, I mean it was so heavy that I fell to my knees. And just to clarify, this weight didn't feel uh, suffocating, it didn't feel bad, it didn't feel, um, you know, enclosing of me in a bad way. It just kind of felt like a heated blanket. It kind of felt like safety. And I remember thinking that for whatever reason, I just knew that the weight I was experiencing was the love of God. And that that is how much he loved me. That the amount of weight that was on my body was the amount that God knew me, loved me, saw me, wanted to hug me. And I don't know how long Ed was praying for me, probably about five minutes, but during that time, right deep down in the heart of things, I just didn't feel at sea anymore. I suddenly felt like I was experiencing this wholeness that people had talked about, an anchoredness that I hadn't before. And I kind of felt like a bright light had just broken into my life. A new day had come almost. But as I said, I'm not stupid. I didn't grow up around this. So that for me, an experience of the spirit was not necessarily enough for me to be like, yeah, I believe it all. So from that time onwards, I went on a little bit of a discovery about, is there actually any basis for the thing that I just experienced? Is there actually any proof that this Jesus is who he says he was? The truth is that no historian worth their salt denies that Jesus Christ was a living, breathing human being who wandered around Nazareth and Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But the more I looked into the evidence of the resurrection, the more I actually found it compelling that this was not just a belief, this could have actually happened. The more history I read, the more I started to believe that the tomb really was empty, 
the religious authorities didn't have the body. The Roman authorities did not have the body because if they did, they could have just brought the body into the center of Jerusalem and been like, here's the body. It's Jesus. He's dead. See, we have him. Do you want to look at him? Do you want to touch him? He's dead. But they didn't do that because they didn't have the body. That's not what history says. The Roman authorities blamed the disciples and said that they must have stolen the dead body of Jesus. But the disciples, let's remember, were a ragtag bunch of teenagers and fishermen who rejected Jesus at the first sight of trouble. And when he died, they continued to reject him because he was so, they were so terrified. And that's before you even think to the, even get the body, they would have had to overcome Roman guards who were the most powerful army in the world, teenagers, teenagers. Then they would have had to pull out his body, hide it, and then they went on to proclaim, he's risen from the dead, knowing that he hadn't because they had the body and they had hidden it. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I'm not going to tell you any more, but if you're interested in the intellectual reading or the intellectual reasoning for why we believe this stuff, there's a lot more. And the more and more I read, the more I was like, oh my gosh, crap, I think this might actually be true. These Christians might be telling the truth. I think they might be right. I think there's actually historical basis for this thing, which was really annoying because I hate being wrong. But I found myself putting my faith, however small, into the hands of this Jesus, who I believed was resurrected. So I would say that for me, believing in the resurrection was the primary reason for actually coming to faith, for being like, I believe it, I'm putting my life on the line here, I want him to have it, etc., etc. But obviously, my brain being convinced wasn't my only reason, because I'm not just a rational, logical, historical person, just like you. We have feelings, we have subjective thoughts, we have experiences, and I couldn't shape my experience. And then my continued experiences when I was either being prayed for or praying on my own. The thing about faith, it's not just something some people have and other people don't. The reality is we all have faith. We all exercise it all of the time. We exercise it when we get into our cars. We exercise it when we buy coffee or food. We certainly are exercising faith when we decide I'll go for a date with that person or in fact I'll marry that person. We're exercising faith all of our lives because how can we know that we're not going to get hurt in a car? How can we know that we're not going to get food poisoning when we eat something bad? And how the heck do we know that the marriage is really going to last forever? unless we have faith that we really know the person that we love and that they really love us. We're exercising faith because we're responding to what we have seen to be true. We probably won't die when we eat something bad. It probably will be okay. The things that we can be absolutely 100%, without a doubt, certain of are very few. They tend to be things like two plus two equals four or the truth that gravity exists or the straight up fact that every single song that Beyonce has ever released is a musical masterpiece. Straight facts. <laughs> I'm part of the Bayhive. These things may all be true, but you don't want to build your life on them. And the thing is, these two wonderful people that we've heard this evening have made a profound statement of faith. 
As Ben said, the symbolism of baptism is a reminder of the power of the resurrection. As we heard, they go down, their old life ends. They come up, they rise with him, a new life begins. The foundation is the very power of the resurrection. And in fact, what keeps my faith growing and kind of steady is continuing to hear stories like we heard tonight of other people's experiences of something completely outside of themselves. It's not simply uh, their historical or intellectual minds who have believed in the resurrection, but then they tell us stories about experiencing it, how that's changed their lives. Let me read a short account to you from Matthew's Gospel, which is just after the resurrection. I've chosen not to put the words on the screen because... um, If you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to close your eyes and for you to spend a moment just imagining yourself in the shoes of the two women. Actually, probably more realistically, the sandals of the two women who got to the tomb early on that Sunday morning. So imagine yourself being there as I read this. If you feel comfortable, why don't you close your eyes? It says this. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know what you're looking for. Jesus who was crucified He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Good morning, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. You can open your eyes. Two little things before we end. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. This is one of my favorite details in the whole Bible. The angels sat on the stone. If you think about it, that stone represents things like, you're not welcome. You're not welcome here. You'll never change. It represents death. It represents defeat. It represents, you're not good enough. No one cares about you. All of these things that we believe that are lies about ourselves, things that cause us pain, things that cause the world pain, represents those things. And the angel just rolls it back and sits on it. In my imagination, I like to think that he just swings his legs a little bit. Maybe he lights up a cigarette. Because what it says 
is that this stone is crushed under the feet of Jesus. That all trouble and strife, all sickness sickness and death, all trauma and pain, they're not the end. That Jesus has come. He's defeated death and has been risen in time and space in a moment of history and lives by his spirit here and now. And he has and continues to change the world. Second little detail. Suddenly, Jesus met them, verse 9. Good morning, he said. My second favorite little detail. Good morning. Now, as a good British person, it's not, my, it's not only my birthright, it's not only my obligation and my genetic inheritance, but also it is my conscious choice to be pessimistic about almost everything. It's just very reassuring to us, isn't it, as Brits, to just think sooner or later, it's going to go wrong. Just all of it. It's all going to go wrong. And given everything that's going on in our world and in our city, the cost of living crisis, the murder of Chris Kabar, the feeling of instability with a new prime minister and a new monarch, the war in Ukraine, floods in Pakistan, the imminent Somali famine that is set to be the worst that we have seen in the last century. It's no shock that it's actually quite hard to be optimistic. And that's before we even talk about our own internal lives, our emotions, our mental health, our relationships, the things that we find hard. Both our stress about our world and our desire to detach from the stuff that we find difficult enable us or, I guess, encourage us to use our mechanisms to run and hide. And these mechanisms aren't necessarily our fault. They're ways that each of us have learned to be safe, uh, both physically and emotionally. But some of them are a choice. A desire to be in control, a choice to be independent, to be in charge, and sometimes even to break stuff. Perhaps your mechanism is staying busy, not allowing your heart or brain enough time to really sit with what's going on in the depths of you. Perhaps you've had bad experiences of friendships and relationships again and again and again. And this has developed in you a need for control. Actually, I don't really want intimate relationship. Perhaps you love to push it hard on a Friday night. You go out, you drink as much as you can because that enables you to feel numb for a while. And perhaps you find it hard to trust people. Perhaps your childhood was actually really traumatic and you fear that uncovering kind of underneath what's going on there would be like opening a box that could never be closed again. What is true of all of us is that we choose to use our coping strategies as long as we possibly can. I've done it. We've all done it. And I don't know about you, but I always find the best excuses and a perfectly good reason to do almost everything that I do, even if it's destructive to me. And particularly when I feel pain, I seem to go right back to what I'm used to, right back to behaviors that feel familiar, right back to something that helped me, numbed me before. But I 
think if we do that over and over again, what is true of all of us is that our hearts become hardened. We can feel lonely and numb. We feel completely isolated in, and in our own emotions. We kind of sit in them on our own. And we can build up anger and resentment and we just don't really know where to go with it. It just is there. It's part of our lives. It's like a friend that sticks around. And perhaps it can feel a bit like we just live our lives under a bit of a rain cloud. Like everything is just a bit crap. Everything's just a bit dark and dingy. And yet, Jesus' first resurrected words are, Good morning. Good morning. Because the resurrection, beyond everything else, speaks of hope. The hope that we've heard these two people embark upon this evening and them testify to. And I believe that this story is true of all of us, that Jesus longs to look each of us in the face, hold us by the cheeks and say, good morning. No matter what you've done, no matter what you feel, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what your parents are like, no matter how little faith you have, no matter how much confusion you have, no matter how much anger you have. The question is, would you like him to say, good morning? Because that's up to you. But the promise is that the night has gone and the new day has come. And he says good morning to all of us, each one of us and to our world. And he can have burdens upon himself and release us of them. So, why don't we stand? If you haven't been here before, at the end of all of our services, we have a moment to just kind of take stock, to think about what's going on in our own heart and mind. And then we offer to pray for people. Because we believe that Jesus really wants to meet us like right now. We don't have to do it at home. He doesn't need us to, you know, do anything special. He just wants to meet us. So can I encourage you, if you feel comfortable, why don't you just close your eyes? Just so you're not distracted, no other reason. And if you'd like to, why don't you open your hands? Similarly to what Ed told me my first time that I was prayed for. The only reason we say open your hands is just because it's a, it's a bit more of a sign of, I'm open to you, Lord, rather than us closing our arms. And let me just pray for us. And let's wait and ask that the Spirit would come and meet with us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you're here with us, and thank you that you're a God who just wants to break in immediately. We don't have to do anything special. We don't have to be clean and sorted. We don't have to even have very much faith. Thank you, Lord, that you are kind. And so I just pray right now in this moment that you would come and meet each one of us in a way that would make sense to us. That it would be really simple. We just welcome your Holy Spirit, Lord.